Our subject this morning is the power of the gospel. And our text is Romans chapter 1. Sometimes when a person of renown delivers a particular well-argued, well-articulated lecture, the after-talk from the audience flows in glowing accolades. Wasn't that a wonderful speech we just heard? How inspiring. I could listen to him all day. Fantastic lecture. Boy, he hit the nail on the head. You know, he moved the crowd with his words. What a powerful speech. These are some of the things we hear. Yet all such praise is based upon the wow factor of the lecturer's personality, his style of delivery, his organized skills, how succinctly he made his points, how clear, how emotionally charged his words, the passion of his delivery, his choice of vocabulary, etc., etc. If you've ever watched any of the speeches of Adolf Hitler, one does not have to become a person well-versed in German, the German language, to see how he mesmerized the crowds, numbering into the tens of thousands with such passion, such fervor, that people were ready to do anything for their Fuhrer. He was the man of the hour. The one who would move Germany out of the poverty and the humiliation of the Versailles Treaty to regain a prominent place in world politics once more. And almost, almost single-handedly, he was responsible for Phoenix rising out of the ashes so to speak. Powerful orator, little guy, big voice, tremendous mesmerizing concepts. Dr. Martin Luther King had similar abilities during the civil rights movement of the 60s, though with far more noble purposes than anything Hitler ever produced. Dr. Billy Graham moved amidst the politics the political arena of our country. He was a frequent visitor to the White House among numerous of our presidents. And he is certainly remembered for the Colosseum-like crusades that he held in most of the major cities of our nation. Where thousands came to hear him preach. Joel Osteen and his wife Victoria were on the Fox News just this last spring as recognized evangelical pastors with a heart because of their visit to Washington, D.C., in what they called Project Hope. In that project, they brought 400 young people from their church to spruce up the poor neighborhoods in our nation's capital. Olstein has just completed a $95 million renovation of his church building in Texas, where he preaches to a crowd of 38,000 every Sunday morning, and if you add television, it's seven million a week. He is certainly, he is certainly a charismatic speaker who has won the allegiance of thousands, thousands, millions to his message. What do we say about all of this? Does the power of the gospel rest in the speaker or in the message? In the message itself, or in the God behind the message? 
Does presentation have anything to do with how powerful the message is? Do stupendous numbers of followers prove the endorsement of God on the messenger and the message? Well, unfortunately, the wow factor of the world has infiltrated the ranks of the external church so that people are looking for and do anticipate something phenomenal in the sermon slot that is assigned to the worship hour. They expect to be impressed, to be moved, to be challenged, to be exhilarated. And if they do not hear ringing bells or see visions or sense an emotional movement in tears of joy or some other phenomena which they believe to be evidence of the presence of God's Spirit, they will not stick with you very long. They will be here today and gone tomorrow, off in search for something more stimulating, more moving, more emotional, and less cerebral. The media, I think, has aided in shifting people's thinking from doctrine to glitz, from teaching to showmanship, from depth of spirituality to shallowness and to the whimsical. It's kind of like a religious burlesque show has emerged in the fashion of Gypsy Rose Lee. Let me entertain you, she would sing. And where there is no entertainment, the people vanish and are gone. Where what is presented does not appeal to the carnal lusts of the heart, be it ever so dressed in the finest apparel, where there are no $1,000 silk suits and a Cheshire catch smile and crystal chandeliers, somehow the hearers do not see power in the message. Power, you see, is defined using the success criteria of Hollywood and the world, that is, the beautiful, the busty, the lusty, the glamour, the aesthetically appealing, the crowds, the opulent surroundings, the decor. This is what demonstrates power. This shows the power of the message. Not a man in a $100 suit standing behind a humble pulpit and preaching from a black book. And unlike Paul, many are, are ashamed of the gospel of God because they are ashamed of the God of the gospel. They are ashamed that God's gospel is narrow and does not teach universalism. They are ashamed that the gospel is but one and not many. They had hoped for a gospel that included all of the religions of the world, and they didn't get it in Jesus Christ. They are ashamed that the gospel is a message of God's sovereign grace and not one of partnership between sinner and God. They are ashamed that God's salvation message is not negotiable. It is not flexible, containing bargaining chips so that they may all benefit despite their particular lifestyle, despite their sinful propensities. They are ashamed 
that the gospel demands repentance as well as faith, and that there will be no salvation apart from a renouncing of wickedness and an adoption of righteous thinking and personal holiness. They will have none of that. But Paul, nor should we, never apologized for preaching the gospel. The people at Rome, the people at Corinth, at Ephesus, were as modern in their thinking as any we find today in America or Europe. They were into sex and entertainment and human philosophy and multiple deities and beauty and art and culture and libraries and everything modern and everything humanistic. All one has to do is to look at their architecture, their sculptures, the paintings, to see that America did not invent the wow factor. Rome had it. Greece, before them, had it. But there would be no accommodation by Paul or the other apostles in the message of the gospel. Instead, we read verse 14 and following of our text, Romans 1. I am obligated to both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. And that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. Romans 1. Verse 15 and 16. Paul wants to come to Rome. He's been preaching in some of the Greek churches. He wants to come to Rome. And he's eager to do so. Now that brings us in, and you look at your bulletin outline, the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel lies in a number of truths. Number one, this message of salvation is from God the Savior. Unlike a lecture on philosophy or the counsel of a well-meaning physician or the advice of a good friend, the gospel is not a suggestion. It is not good advice. It is not one of many acceptable pathways for sinners to be reconciled to God. It is God's word on how those who have broken the law and rebelled against His holy will may be spared the judgment to come through repentance and faith. Paul does not deny the universal appeal of the gospel. He tells it that the message is for both Jews and Greeks. Well, what's that? That's the world. The world of his day. For those taught in Old Testament law and morality, and for those who are steeped in anti-God, licentious culture full of idolatry. And you see, in that sense, it transcends ethnic and cultural boundaries. There is no provincial gospel. There is no Jewish gospel. There is no Gentile gospel. There is only God's gospel. And in that we see its power for God is one. Reading from Isaiah 45, God says, Turn to me and be served, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, 
My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear, and they will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. Isaiah 45, verses 22-24. Now when the churches of Galatia began to mess with the message of the gospel, by imbibing elements of the Jewish religion, in their case circumcision, and thinking of that as essential to salvation, Paul chided them with these words, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you, that's God, by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Galatians 1, verse 6 and 7. Now think about that. Paul says, a, a different gospel, which is no gospel. By the way, the word gospel means good news. So he's saying, a different gospel, which is not good news. No gospel. And so now we have a no gospel. But he goes on and says, a no gospel that is a perverted gospel. Mm, things are getting really serious here, aren't they? Oh, but it gets worse. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned, Galatians 1 verse 8. So now we have a damning gospel for the preacher of such lies. But what about the recipients of a different gospel or a no gospel or a perverted gospel. What about the recipients of the damn the false preacher gospel? He answers Galatians 5 verse 2 through 4. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You really want to do that? The New Revised Standard Version says you have cut yourself off from Christ. Obviously a reference to circumcision. It goes on, you have fallen from grace. Brethren, the power of the gospel is found firstly in the truth that it is God's own message of hope and salvation. Don't be tinkering with the essentials of the gospel because then you get into no gospel. You get into a perverted gospel. You get into a damning gospel. 
Remember, circumcision here is not viewed hygienically. It's referred to as the Jewish rite that made them part of the covenant community of the Old Testament. So when he's saying that, you know, if you're going to be circumcised, if you let yourself be circumcised, what you're doing, what you're saying is, I'm going to be believing in Christ, but I'm also all going to add to that belief in circumcision and trusting that the rites of the Jewish religion will make me saved or produce salvation for me. So that's why he's hot under the collar about this. And he says, I'm astonished at you guys. Number two, it is a message based on God's righteousness, not man's righteousness. Look at verse 17. In the gospel, God's gospel, understand here, not a counterfeit, but in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. The message of man-made gospels is self-righteousness. Every one of them. The emphasis is on what you, the hearer, must do to appease God, to placate God, to get right with God, and so on. The, spirit, the spiritual ability of man is never questioned. It is assumed that the problem is not ability, but lack of knowledge. Not impotency, but ignorance. We read that on one occasion a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Matthew 19, verse 16. Now you notice here that there is no questioning by this man of his abilities. His question is about information. He suggests that he lacks information on how to gain eternal life. His inquiry also suggests that if Jesus will just be so kind as to lay out the requirement, he is sure that he will be able to comply. What I need from you, Jesus, is not righteousness that I already possess. What I need from you is information. And when you tell me what I have to do to be saved, I'm sure I can do it. When Jesus referenced some of the Ten Commandments, this young man replied, All these I have kept! What do I still lack? Matthew 19, verse 20. And Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. Matthew 19, verse 21. And as you know, this man was slain in conscience by the reality of the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet, because he was rich. And he had no intention of liquidating his material idols, which were his substitute gods, in order to gain heaven. I could say it this way. He had no ability to sell off his fortune. He couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. Those were his gods. His self-righteousness was deeply flawed. He failed to love God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. He failed to love his neighbor as himself. 
For the righteousness of legal obedience to save. Listen to me now. For the righteousness of legal obedience to save. There can be no slip up. Not once. Not ever. No shortfall. James put it this way. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet, and yet, stumbles at just one point, he is guilty of breaking all of it. James 2 verse 10. And Paul said something similar. We read, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. Galatians 5 verse 3. In other words, the gospel is coming to them and it's saying, you don't get to pick and choose. It's all or nothing. Why? Because God is perfect in holiness and Jesus commands, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, verse 48. And guess what? None of us can do it. I would be so bold as to say if we could do it, then we could be saved by our own obedience. But since God demands perfection, that's not even a possibility. But as with all God's laws, the sticky point is our inability as sinners to pull it off. The writer of Hebrews says this. Listen to this. If there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, that's the Old Testament, no place would have been sought for another covenant. Think about that. Old covenant, ten commandments, thou shalt not, da, 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 plus all the laws written in Leviticus. If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God, here it is, found fault with the people. And he said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Hebrews 8, verse 7 and 8. Then the fault of the Ten Commandments was not in the Ten Commandments, but in the ability of sinners to obey. Paul writes it this way. So then the law, you guys just think about this, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, good. Romans 7, verse 12. But then just two verses later, here's his, here's his confession. We know, he says, that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Romans 7, verse 14. Nothing wrong with the law. It's perfect, righteous, good. Everything's wrong with me. The law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. Now that's the Apostle Paul saying that. This being true of all men without exception, God's gospel has a different source of righteousness and a different kind of righteousness than what we bring to the equation. Our text says a righteousness from God. A righteousness, might say, that destroys self-righteousness, that destroys law-keeping and attempted good works and replaces them all with the righteousness of God's 
perfect son. So emphatically, so unequivocally that Paul is compelled to assert Christ is the end of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Romans 10 verse 4. The old covenant couldn't cut it because the people couldn't do it. In our text we read verse 17. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live or gain life, you see, by faith. To the Corinthians, Paul said, It is because of Him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us, what? Wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Jesus is all of these things to us. And only Jesus. It cannot even be Jesus plus our obedience to the law. That was the Galatian error. Paul writes in Galatians 2 verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be obtained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. I wonder if we've ever thought about Galatians 2, verse 21. If you could be saved by keeping the law of God, then Christ died for nothing. The power of the gospel then lies secondly in the fact that it declares salvation by faith in God's righteousness from first to last. There is no in-between way to weasel some self-glory into it. Man is abased. God is exalted. The sinner is not reformed. He is renewed. He is not assisted. He is crucified. He is not instructed on doing. He is instructed to believe. He is not mollified with thoughts of self-help. But he has pointed instead to Jesus who alone is his righteousness and his redemption. That's the good news. When you couldn't do it, when I couldn't do it, when Paul couldn't do it, when we are lost in transgression and sin, Christ did it. Christ did it. If you will trust him, if you will put your faith in what he's done, therein is salvation and life and not in anything else. Number three. The power of the gospel lies in the truth that its efficacy to save sinners has nothing to do with the message but everything to do with the Holy Spirit of God. So we cast the seed. We give the gospel seed. Better have Holy Spirit attending to that. If you want to see fruit. When Paul showed up within the city limits of wicked Corinth, his testimony was this. I appreciate Paul for his uh, stark honesty. Here's what he says. He's writing to the Corinthians. It's kind of a rehash of, he's, he's thinking back of 
when he first came to Corinth as a, as a missionary. And he's telling them his heart feelings when he came to them. Here's what he says. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence of superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. 1 Corinthians 2, first five verses. He's telling them, you know, just straight out. When I came to you, I was scared of you. I didn't come in there with the idea that I would approach you like a Greek philosopher and use wonderful and eloquent terminology. But I wanted to see the Spirit's power among you. You know, the Corinthians were Greeks. And as Greeks, they were all into oratory. They were all into the kind of presentation which exhibited the mastery of the Greek language, the structure of Greek logic and philosophy. They were looking for the wow factor. Read Acts 17 and you'll see it. They took him up to a hill in Athens. Same kind of thought. Athens just a stone throw away from Corinth. And they wanted to hear Paul give his philosophy on life. But Paul did not accommodate their thinking. He was too intimidated by their renown for rhetoric and logic. In his own words, he came to them in weakness and fear and, and much trembling. And yet he spoke with boldness because the gospel he preached was the word of God. Yes, but also because the spirit of God empowered him to display God's wisdom. In this introductory way then, Paul demonstrated in his own ministry, what he would formalize as basic ministry principles, one chapter later, where he explains, or where he again rather addresses the human element in the gospel presentation. Here's what he says Brothers, he's speaking to the Corinthians, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk and not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For one, one says, well, I follow Paul. And another says, well, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Answer, only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So, conclusion, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. 1 Corinthians 3, 1-7. 
What he is saying here is that the gospel seed is not enhanced by the messenger. Its power is not in the eloquence of the proclamation. In fact, the gospel by itself is just so much good seed scattered on hard pan soil or rocky soil or weed choking soil or even on fertile soil. And yet, and yet without the movement of God's spirit to make the seed sprout and begin to grow, the seed lies on dead soil. Now, the fertile soil would have the proper nutrients. The Apollos-type preachers would add the needed water. But even so, unless God makes it sprout and grow, watered seed just rots in the ground, and there's no crop. Thus, God is everything. And Paul and Apollos and Timothy and Spurgeon and Whitfield and you and me and whoever are nothing. Nothing. Only servants through whom hearers come to believe. Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 3. And in verse 21 of that same chapter, he says, The Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or all are yours, and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. The important thing is not the human instrument that brought you the word, but God and his spirit. This being so, I issue this caution, and that is this, that the success, the success of Bible preaching or a Bible conference or an evangelistic crusade has to, has to do little, little with hiring a Justin Peters who was our last speaker or a Donald Carson or Michael Horton or a John Piper or a John MacArthur as the featured speaker. It has little to do with that. Rather, only God-exalting glory is worthy of the definition of success. And for God to be glorified, He must be present by His Spirit to wield the sword of the Word of God in such a way as to slay self-righteous sinners and to humble self-authenticating preachers. John said it true when he exclaimed, He must become greater, said John the Baptist. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth. and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen, what he has heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit, that is, to Jesus Christ. Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on Him. John 3, verse 16. 
verses 30 through 36. It's quite humbling. The power of the gospel to save sinners has nothing to do with the messenger and everything to do with the Holy Spirit of God. Now it's true, we can't preach error, we can't preach lies and expect people to be saved. But being that, that being said, preaching the gospel, giving it forth in the best knowledge that we have of the book, even that we are beholden to the Spirit of God to make the seed grow. Now that brings us to the last point of the message, and that is people that are ashamed of the gospel. And the first note there is to be ashamed of the gospel is to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. The central doctrine of the gospel is Jesus and his cross. Paul calls it the gospel of God's Son, verse 9 of our text. In verse 2 he says it is the gospel God promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding what? His Son declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the gospel. That's the central figure. There's no good news for sinners apart from Jesus the Son. There is no salvation apart from resurrection. So mockers need to be aware. Paul says it this way, For the message of the cross is foolishness, yeah, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. First Corinthians 1 verse 18, the same expression that we have in verse 16 here of Romans 1. Or in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, so is your faith. Verse 17 of that chapter, Your faith is beautiful. You're still in your sins. What he is saying here is that Jesus cannot be dissected and parceled out in bite-sized acceptable pieces. Some like Jesus' ethics. Some like his teaching. Some like his compassion. Some like his concern for the poor. The ecumenicists love this Jesus. They do. And that's the gospel they preach. But they also disdain his cross and the open tomb. The cross offends them because they see no need for atonement. A substitute to stand in between us and God and to take on a punishment for our sin. And the open tomb seems ludicrous because the dead rise not in their viewpoint. But there's no gospel apart from these truths. Paul says the last enemy that we have to face is what? Death. So if the last enemy gets you and there's no victory over the last enemy, guess what? Guess who wins? So, to be ashamed of Christ 
is to be ashamed of the singular central message of the gospel. And secondly, to be ashamed of Jesus is sure doom. There is no connection with God, the Father, apart from Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. There is no connection with God the Father apart from Jesus Christ. You can be monotheistic as are the Muslims in the Islam faith. One God, one God, we believe in one God. But they don't have Jesus Christ. Therefore they don't have God. Let me read it for you. Moreover, the Father judges no one, writes Jesus, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 5, verse 22 and 23. Oh, it gets more serious. John writes... No one who denies the Son, I'm reading scripture, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. 1 John 2 verse 23. All the religions of the world who claim to know God and worship God and follow God's will are bogus if they deny Jesus Christ. Um, it is even more serious than that, though this is very serious. Jesus taught, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But, but, whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33. Sounds pretty exclusive, doesn't it? Yeah, it is. Extremely exclusive. Again, John writes, He who has the Son has a life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John 5, verse 12. So the gospel, which is first and foremost good news to all who receive it, nonetheless has this caveat, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 18 of our text. You can have the truth, but if you suppress it, you don't act upon it, does you no good. The psalmist put it this way, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me. And I will give you the earth. Excuse me. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. God is saying this to his son. The nations I give to you. 
Therefore, then he turns his attention in this song to address the kings or the governors or the presidents or the prime ministers of nations. And he says this, Therefore, you kings, wise up, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun, lest he become angry with you and you be destroyed in your way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2, verse 6 or 12. To put it succinctly, to be ashamed of the gospel is to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. And to be ashamed of Jesus is sure doom. For all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him, and salvation is found in no one else, says Peter, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, verse 12. You only have one Savior. This world gets one Savior, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And our faith and trust must be put in Him and what He's done for sinners. And it's not what we're doing. But we're putting our trust upon the one who's done it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, are you a Christian this morning? Say, well, I live in a Christian country. No, that, that, that won't cut it. Sorry, that won't cut it. Say, well, I go to church every week. No, I'm sorry, that won't cut it either. There's many churches that are not teaching the gospel of Christ. So I try to be good and try to keep the tent. No, I'm sorry, that won't cut it either. We're all lost in trespasses and sins. Not only have we broken one commandment, of the Ten Commandments, what we've broken, many of them, if not all of them. Say, well, what's one little? No, it's not one little. It's a whole life of law-breaking. Well, maybe God, because he's so compassionate and so merciful, he'll just kind of um, look the other way. In regards to my sin. No, sorry, that won't cut it either. God is more than love. He's also just. Is it just to look the other way concerning lawbreakers and criminals? Isn't that one of the gripes we have about our own judicial system? That sometimes justice seems to fly out the window? Our courts do not seem to punish the lawbreakers? There's no such thing in God's court. And Jesus, I read it from John 5 this morning. Jesus, God the Father, has committed all judgment into the hands of Jesus Christ, his Son. Why? So that men might honor him like they honor the Father. So you see, what you do with Jesus Christ is extremely important. My prayer for you this morning is that you might come to God and seek his forgiveness in Christ. Dad, I don't know how to do it. Prayer is what? It's just talking to God, like I'm talking to you. You can do this in the privacy of your own heart right now. And ask the Lord, say, I don't have the faith you have, Pastor Luke. Well, you can tell God that. You can say, I don't believe in you. You can tell God, I don't have faith in you. You can tell God, I don't believe the gospel message. I don't understand the gospel message. You can tell him anything. 
So long as you end this prayer, Lord, if what Pastor Lucas said this morning is true and right, if there's no hope except in Jesus Christ, then show me Jesus Christ. Open my eyes to see. You can pray that. And God will honor such prayers. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're thankful and appreciative of your word. Thankful for the power of the gospel. And I, for one, am so glad that its efficacy, its power, its potency does not reside or depend upon the speaker, but upon the Holy Spirit of God, bringing life to dead hearts so that the seed planted in the proclamation of the gospel will take root and grow and flourish. May our hope not be in our own self-righteousness, not in some kind of combination like the Galatian error of faith in Jesus plus circumcision or some other godly work. No, may our faith be only in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Send forth your spirit even now to quicken our dead hearts. Make us alive to you. Grant us the faith we don't have and the repentance we don't want to exercise because we love our sin. Help us to see that we can love it. We'll love it all the way to hell unless we repent, unless we turn away and come to you for forgiveness and cleansing. Change us, Lord. Make us brand new in Jesus' name. Amen.